This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. My name is Judy Cho, and I am board certified in holistic nutrition. I focus on root cause healing, and oftentimes that starts with the carnivore cure meat only elimination diet. While you're here, please make sure to subscribe and hit the bell. And also on podcasts, please leave a five star review as this gets my content in front of more people. And thank you for that. Today, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Bill Schindler. Dr. Bill Schindler is the author of Eat Like a Human. And he is an internationally known archaeologist, primitive technologist, and a chef. Dr. Bill Schindler founded and directs the Eastern Shore Food Lab. And along with his wife, Christina, they operate the Modern Stone Age Kitchen, a foodery designed to provide nourishing food created using ancestral approaches, maximizing safety, maximizing nutrient density, and bioavailability to the community. In the conversation today, we talk a lot about nutritional nuance. We just say, let's eat meat, let's eat dairy, but we get into some of the specifics, even talking about corn and grain and how, in some contexts, as you heal, it may be okay to eat, but in a way that is properly prepared and if it makes sense for your own individual needs. Remember, this is a very nuanced discussion. So I don't want you to feel overwhelmed. And we keep reiterating that point in the conversation that this is really about finding optimal health and how to find levers to get there. Let's get right into the discussion. Hi, Dr. Bill. Thank you so much for joining me. I've heard you on so many podcasts and I really wanted to bring you on. Your book is wonderful. I love the recipes in it and just all the content. And I know we're going to dig into some of that. For the people that are watching and listening that don't know you, do you mind just introducing yourself? I'd be happy to. Thank you for having me on. So, my name is, is Bill Schumer. I am,、uh, by training, an archaeologist and anthropologist, and more recently,、uh, a chef. And what I've I've spent my entire life trying to, to answer the same question so many of us are trying to answer what should I be eating? What should I be eating for my own health? What should I be feeding my family to, to maximize their health? 
And I, I'm coming at it from these really unique viewpoints, right? From, from looking at a really deep ancestral dietary past that's about three and a half million years long, um, coming at it from spending, having spent a lot of time with indigenous and traditional groups around the world, and also coming at it now from not only being a father, but my wife and I have um, what we call a foodery, uh, the modern Stone Age kitchen, where we are uh, really making high quality food for the community that we, we truly believe in. So I have hope to be able to touch upon all those things as, as we move forward. And you have an incredible healing story. Do you mind sharing sure. uh, your story about that? <laughs> I'm happy to. Uh, so I grew up, uh, I, I was born in 1973. So I'm a product of the 1970s and 80s where there was this huge, and I guess there still is at some level, but this huge at that time, um, demonization of of high quality fat. You were supposed to be eating all these processed foods. If you were if you were a good mother in the 1970s, there's no way you would be breastfeeding because breast milk was supposed to be superior. And all of those, you know, they were changing breeding pigs to be the other white meat. You know, I, I'm literally a walking product of all of that because my parents were very interested in health and they were listening to everything everyone was telling them, doctors, the media, and the like. Um, and I was always an overweight kid as and 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 bullied as a result of it and uh, incredibly poor body self image and finally when I was in high school I did I found athletics which was wonderful and I and I dove deep and in, in, into that and was working out massive amounts uh, during the day my my body the, the physical appearance of my body changed because of that but I was nowhere as near healthy um I was a wrestler and my my unhealthy relationship with food changed from um you know, it being something that, you know, I felt food caused me to be uh, ugly or other kids to make fun of me or to be fat to something that now I was afraid of because food was something that, you know, kept me from making weight. Uh, I ended up becoming a division one athlete. I wrestled for Ohio State, which is one of the top programs in the country. Then actually still is just a fantastic program. And I still, you know, again, I looked like an athlete. I performed well. I like to say not because of what I I was eating, but the spite of what I, what I was eating. And as soon as I stopped working out three times a day and after I finished college, all the weight came back on and I just, I was suffering from all sorts of issues. And, and we can talk about many of them as, but metabolic disease in general. And it was devastating. Now here I was a 20 something year old man and just living this life of, 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 of obesity, always worried about how I looked and just not feeling well at all and suffering from all these other issues. And this entire time, you know, I've had, I hired nutritionists, my parents hired nutritionists. I had team doctors telling me what I, what I should and shouldn't be eating. And none of it worked. I tried all the different fad diets. None of it worked. None of it felt right. And it wasn't until about 15 or 20 years ago uh, when I, you know, I, you know, when I was married and then when my wife, Christine, and I started having children and it became more, you know, understanding food and nutrition was more than just about me. Then it was about the other people I loved and, and, and nourishing them that I really started to make the connections between all my work as an archaeologist and anthropologist and my desire to figure out how humans should be eating. So we were, we've, we dove deep on this amazing quest to understand um, our ancestral past, to create that foundation for sort of this relationship between humans and food and, and what diet built us as humans. And then my family and I have been very fortunate uh, to be able to conduct research with some of the most amazing groups around the world and, and all different continents. And, and we were able to live and work with these groups and, and understand uh, what they were doing to their food to make it as safe and nourishing as possible. And, and to sort of put an, an end piece to this, two two quick things. One, 
Um, I am now, I just turned 49. I am in the best shape and health of my entire life. And that includes the time that I was a division one athlete, uh, which is wonderful. And second, the, the, what I found when I really dove deep into this and really started to better understand the relationship with humans and food and diet and health is that my entire life I've been asking the wrong question. The, the, the answer isn't, doesn't just lie in what should we be eating, but it's in how we should be eating. Humans have one of the least efficient digestive tracts of any animal on the planet. And what we do different from other animals is that we process our food first. And I know that's an evil word, but I mean it in a positive way process our food, do something to our food before it goes into our mouths to make it as safe and nourishing as possible. That's really the backbone of, of a human diet. That's the backbone of the diet that built us as humans. And I believe that sort of approach is going to help create that uh, future of food that can really not only nourish us, but help nourish the planet. In your book, um, Eat Like a Human, you mention even grains and how it's not really necessarily that grains are all bad but that it's also the preparation of it that we've lost. And, mm -hmm. you know, even in the Western A. Price community, they mentioned that if you properly prepare your sourdough, it's not a bad food. Can you talk a little bit about the history of grains, how the processing is so important? To lay the foundation for, for this part of the conversation, let me also just quickly say, it, we have this tendency to say, okay, these humans, th these are foods we're designed to eat and these are foods right. we're not designed to eat. We kind of categorize that. Um, and depending on what camp you come from and whether you're keto or carnivore or vegan or whatever it is, right. you, you, you sort of you have this dichotomy of, of food, black and white sort of approaches. And what one of the things that I think we need to do is first of all, get rid of that dichotomy because it's, it's actually not true. The reality is we're not designed to eat almost every food that we eat. I mean, uh, wild animals are designed to eat a particular diet and they consume that diet and they have the biological means to safely and efficiently digest the foods that are a part of that diet. Humans are omnivores, but not by design. We are omnivores by technology. We're omnivores because for 3.4 million years, we've been creating technologies to process food to get it ready for our incredibly weak digestive tracts. Most of the technologies in the past surrounding animal-based foods are about getting the animal, taking it down, overcoming our physical limitations and being able to throw things, spears, boomerangs, bows and arrows, whatever it is, and take an animal down. And then once an animal's down and you have a sharp edge, you don't need to do anything else, really, to, to extract almost all the nutrition from that animal. But plants are something completely different. Even as hunter-gatherers, almost all of the um, technology that went into including plant-based foods in our diets are about processing those plants to make them safe and to make the nutrients in those plants digestible to our bodies, at least up until the agricultural revolution, where a lot of things certainly changed. And grains are a great example of that. Grains, it's so funny because uh, nuts, seeds, legumes, and grains are biologically designed, you know, both, both chemically and, and, and physically designed to withstand the digestive tracts of animals. I mean, that's what they do. They're, they're the babies of the plants, right? And they're, they're encased quite often in, in, in things that like uh, seeds and fruits that are designed to attract an animal to eat it. They smell good. They taste good. And the idea is, you know, an animal eats that fruit and, and then the, the seed withstands the digestive tract and then gets deposited in a pile of manure somewhere else and the species gets propagated. But they're not designed for us 
to gain nutrition from them. And here we are eating massive quantities or trying to eat massive quantities of grains and safely derive nutrition from them. And it's possible, but we have to do something to those grains first. And what we see around the world in, uh, in group, traditionally in groups that consume large quantities of grains, nuts, seeds, legumes, whatever, there's some sort of a processing involved to make them safe and make them nutrition. We all know the dangers, I'm sure, of, of eating certain kinds of grains, the lectins, the anti-nutrients, all those sorts of things. One uh, The major ways we can start to counteract some of those uh, effects are things like soaking, sprouting, and fermenting. And something like sourdough bread is fantastic because you, in many cases, go through all, at least two of those steps and sometimes three, depending on the type of bread you're making. And the difference between a sourdough bread and most of the bread that we all have access to in the grocery stores is that most bread is a yeasted bread. So it uses yeast to convert carbohydrates usually to um, carbon dioxide and alcohol. The alcohol gets burned off, but the carbon dioxide is the gas that actually makes the bread rise. There's no transformation of the grains. There's nothing making those grains safer or more, more nourishing for our, our bodies. All we do is take uh, dough that is small and make it big and fluffy and it smells good and tastes good. But the sourdough, sourdough breads do use yeast. Typically, there are wild yeast that do the same thing. But in addition to that, there's another fermentation, a bacterial fermentation, a, lacto, a lactobacterial fermentation that transforms those grains into something that's safer and the nutrients that are in it are more nourishing and more easily accessible to our body. So a loaf of sourdough bread and a loaf of yeasted bread, even if they're made from the same exact ingredients, are two completely different foods and our bodies do different things with them. If you were to buy sourdough from the stores, is it as safe as, I mean, obviously it's probably not, but <laughs> in the store then, if I were to pick sourdough, is it a safer bet than the other breads, the artisan breads that are in the store? It, it depends on so many different things. And this is why one of the one of the things I'm a huge advocate for is learning how to make food yourself from scratch at home. Not and I truly understand that some people don't have the desire, the time, or the means to make all of their food entirely from scratch. And, and that's not what I'm suggesting, even though that's amazing if you can. It's the knowledge that you need to be able to see through the billions of billions of dollars in marketing and advertising from the modern food, industrial food system that's trying to trick you and make you think things are certain ways in supermarkets, that knowledge can be gained in your own kitchen and you can become the most informed consumer by doing that. So even if you just made bread once, like make a loaf of sourdough bread once and then go into the grocery store, you're a completely different consumer. The problem with sourdough and so many of our other foods is that there's no uh, regulation for calling something sourdough. You know, you look at most of the sourdough pretzels that are commercially available and they're not sourdough. You look at most of the bread that's labeled sourdough bread in a, in a big box store or in, our, in most of our grocery stores, and it's actually not sourdough. So what this is what you need to look for to, to understand the difference. Um, number one, there's this mistaken idea that sourdough bread should taste sour. In fact, most sourdough bread bakers, good ones, hate the term sourdough because their bread actually isn't sour. But the, the, and a good artisan sourdough bread maker can control the sourness of the bread. Um, and in fact, if you've ever had sourdough bread that's really sour, most of the time the baker did something wrong. There's a third fermentation. If there's an alcohol buildup and acetabater fermentation, which is what actually creates vinegar, right? Acetic acid. And if you get that happening, Thing, then you get this really weird off sour flavor. But anyhow, we're stuck with this term sourdough for bread. 
And most of us believe sourdough bread should taste a little bit sour. So does the modern industrial food system. So what they do is they just quite often take a regular yeasted bread and add something sour to it. Uh, Citric acid, acetic acid, which is also vinegar, or lactic acid are the common ones. So if you turn over a package of sourdough bread and it says anything sour on the back, then turn, put it back down and put it right back on the shelf real nicely and leave it there because it's, it's not sourdough bread. Um, it's easy enough to make at home, which is, which I think is, is the best way to go about it. But the best place to get sourdough bread is to actually go to a local baker. And there's, you know, there, there's more and more and more every single week popping up and, you know, ask them what they're doing. Are they using a wild you know, sourdough process, a long, slow fermentation process? And if so, that's something you can, you should, you should purchase. And yes, that if they do it the right way would be the same uh, health and nutritional benefits of doing it yourself at home. In terms of anti-nutrients, um, I know soaking and sprouting and all of those proper preparations do reduce some of the anti-nutrients, but it doesn't reduce all. Do you think it's okay that we're still eating some of the, like the grains and we can talk about corn in a second, but sure. is it okay or is it safe enough to eat with some of the anti-nutrients still present? Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. Yes, it depends. And and some of this is all about, uh, you know, things like moderation and how much you eat. and this is one of the things I, I think an understanding or um, or getting rid of that. This, this is the camp. Yeah. The two different camps is because almost every food that we eat has a trade-off. There's yeah. A, yeah. For example, vegetables. Yeah. Vegetables have nutrition in them, right? They, they do. And actually I don't know of a vegetable that doesn't have nutrition in them, even the ones that will kill you when you eat them, but they all have some level of a toxin. And quite often those nutrients are locked up and require mass, either, either processing before you eat it or massive energy output by your body to access those nutrients. So even though you're getting them, there is, is a downside, right? And I think we just have to, to, to understand that there is really no such thing as, you know, just a food that you can turn your brain off and just eat as much as you want. And uh, there's no potential repercussions of doing that. We need it. I know it's exhausting. It's exhausting to me It's to continuously think about food, but it's actually a privilege. It's actually something that we should be very happy that we have the opportunity now more than ever to know more about food and to be able to make those decisions. Yeah. I've been working on a food toxin database and, or we call it a sensitivity database at this point, but we have these different categories. Um, it could be elimination diets, and then there's um, anti-nutrients, then there's histamines, glycemic index, and then the sum of it on the main pages, if there's any bit that's an avoid based on that category, the food will turn up red. So avoid based on your di- diets and the sensitivities you chose. Well, on that first page, if you select everything, then every single food, including meats will be red because even meats have histamines or meats have other things. My husband is helping me develop it. And he's saying the first page is going to look like, wow, you can't eat anything. So you're exactly right with that. So I agree. It's pretty (laughs) interesting. So talking about corn, um, you mentioned in your book that 
it's not really necessarily that corn is that harmful, but it's also the processing, you know, like if we were to go to Mexico, there's a way that they properly prepare corn and that it's a little bit safer. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And let me, let me, I love the the fact that you said the word properly. Let me define what properly means, especially in terms of, of uh, processing, well, food in general, but definitely for plants. Processing, proper processing or processing to me that is valuable to our food accomplishes three goals simultaneously. One is it makes the food as safe as possible. Number two is it makes the food as nutrient dense as possible. And number three, it makes the food as, or the nutrients in the food as bioavailable as possible. I love talking about corn because corn or corner maize is uh, like a great poster child for this. So um, for anybody listening, maize and corn, we use the term the same. Corn is actually um, uh, a, a historic European term that just means grain. And it's actually meant grain in the area that you happen to be. So corn in Ireland would have meant oats and corn in England would have meant some sort of wheat probably or barley. So when the explorers came to the Americas and saw what we consider maize, the Native Americans with maize, they just said, oh, that's their corn. That's their grain. And now we say corn and maize are <clears throat> you know, almost um, synonymous. So when I say corn or maize, especially for this conversation, what I mean is j- the dried version of it, the stuff that you would grind into something like cornmeal or make um, uh, something like grits out of. The, the corn on the cob that we eat, is yes, it's corn, it's maize, but it's actually an immature version of it. And we eat it before it's finished. We eat it before the sugars go to other places and it's nice and sweet. Um, In either case, corn or maize is one of the most difficult grains for the human body to fully digest. And here we are with this grain that's incredibly difficult for the human body to make use of. And it's the most widely grown grain in the world, feeding not only massive quantities of people, but unfortunately, because it is so incredibly easy to grow and cheap to grow, especially with subsidies and filling, and it tastes good that it's this staple food for so many um, populations, especially um, impoverished populations around the world that don't have access to other foods. So here's, you know, the staple diet in people's diets that don't have access to other food is one of the most difficult grains for the human body to process. Now it was domesticated we don't know the exact date now, probably close to eight, at minimum 8,000 years ago. Some people are suggesting it's it's much earlier than that. And it was the grain, it was the food, the staple food that so many um, civilizations were actually founded on, the Mayans, the Aztecs, the Incas. And it wasn't, and I like to say, it wasn't like they ate a whole bunch of other food and some and some corn. They ate corn and some other foods. I mean, it was that their their food was based on it. Their diet was based on it. Their religion was based on it. Their way of life was based on it. And archaeologically, we don't see any issues as a result of them eating that much maize in their diets. When the explorers came to the uh, to the New World, to the Americas about 500 or so years ago, it, it had spread all over. It spread all throughout the Americas, Central America, South America, North America, and they were eating it in, in, in a lot of different ways. And the explorers took this base. Oh, my gosh, this, it tastes good. It looks good. It's easy to work with. Are the latitudes that this is growing is the same latitudes that you know a lot of our populations are living in. So let's bring it back and see if it grows. And it did. And it grew like wildfire. The problem is they did the same thing that we do so often in, in the modern world today is they took the thing, but not the, the culture around it, not the, not the technology surrounding how to actually make it work. Sure, they could make they could grow it, 
but could they feed a population on it? Absolutely not. And what happens is when they brought that maize back without the technology to process it properly, people started getting sick. Every, everywhere you see maize dominate the diet in Europe, you see people getting sick and dying. And I don't mean 10 people or 15 people, hundreds of thousands of people dying and millions of people getting sick from a disease called pellagra, which is a deficiency of niacin in the diet. We see it in Spain first, we see it in Italy, we see it in Eastern Europe, and it spreads throughout Europe. And then we see it again at the end of the Irish potato famine, uh, when the U.S. was shipping massive quantities of maize as famine relief food. People were people that had access to the maize were no longer getting sick and dying from not eating anything, but they were getting sick and dying from this weird disease they never saw before. And then it comes back to the Americas. Actually, it goes to the Americas where it had never been before, the disease at least, and is in massive quantities in the early 1920s to 1930s in the American Southeast, where uh, two two things were happening there. One is there were um, large amounts of, of, of people living in, in, in poor conditions with, without a lot of access to food. And two, maize was, corn was like king in the South. And we see this pellagra. And to make a very long story short, it took decades to figure out what was causing this. And it turns out it was pellagra deficiency of niacin in the diet. We realized finally it was related to massive quantities of corn in the diet to the exclusion of other foods. And the kind of crazy part of the story is that niacin is in corn. In fact, there's quite a bit of niacin in corn. It's just in a state called niacin that you can't, the body can't, our human body can't access it. And the only way to access it is to uh, go through this processing, which is incredibly simple, called nishtamalization. We know for sure the process is at least 4,000 years old. It is a process that's still used today to make traditional real tortillas, traditional and real tamales, the word tamales in nishtamalization. Um, but unfortunately, for most of the corn around the world, it is not used at all. So millions of people were getting sick and hundreds of thousands were dying as a result of a nutrient deficiency in a diet that is founded on a food that contained the nutrient that was causing the issues. And it was just passing right through their digestive tracts. And it's crazy because you know, we, 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 corn is such the, the cornerstone of, of conversations about feeding growing population. And should we, right. I've been in so many conversations, we need genetically modified crops because we've got to feed a growing population and we got to figure out how to plant more corn in the same acreage and produce more food. And I'm sitting back saying, well, whoa, we're not even getting all the nutrients from the corn we have now. Like hold this conversation off for later and let's do everything we can to access the nutrients that are actually in the food that we're eating. And that is just, I think it's an extreme example, but that is just a example with corn that you can make a very similar, tell a very similar story to almost every single food in our, in, in our diet. There's something we could be doing better to, to better access the nutrients that are in it. And a quick little side note is that it is in the 1930s when we figured, it, figured out it was a result of the deficiency of niacin uh, that caused the pellagra that instead of turning around and saying, oh, all the maize we should be eating should be processed this way. Instead, we just started fortifying literally every baked good with niacin. And it's because of that, that you go in and pick up your Wonder Bread and it says fortified with niacin. Or pick up the muffins and it says fortified with niacin. That was a question I was going to ask you. Um, I'll just move on. So um, in the, what, what is the way that they process differently in the places that 
uh, have the nice and more bioavailable? It, it, so it's it's incredibly simple. In fact, all you need to do is put the maize in an alkaline solution. So again, anything you all we do is change the pH. Anything below seven is acidic. Anything above seven is is alkaline or basic. And it used to be done with with wood ash, so which is uh, alkaline. You take wood ash and water and put the maize in it, simmer it for about thirty minutes, turn off the heat and let it sit overnight. And the next day, and, and the chemical reaction that takes place, it's really like an alkaline fermentation. The um, the the chemical reactions that take place overnight allow that maize to chemically and physically transform into something that's uh, easier for our body to digest and make nutrients available and changes the niacite, niacite and the ni- bioavailable niacin. And the next day you rinse it in a couple changes of water, the skins rinse off, and then all of a sudden you have a completely different food. You can either take that, that's called hominy, right? At that point, it's called hominy. If you grind it, it's called masa or masa dough. And then you can either press that in the tortilla or make tamales out of it. Um, if you partially grind it, that would be what real grits were. And actually up until the Civil War, all grits were nishtamalized, but today they're they're not. They're just ground up corn. So if you don't do these things and you consume, say, um, cornmeal or grits or something like that, and I don't care how long you boil it for, I don't care how much you overcook it, there is nutrients in that food that's going to pass directly through your body. If you do it, then you are have, have much more complete access to all the nutrients that are in it. So nowadays, they don't use wood ash. You could use anything that's alkaline. Um, most of the time, we use something called cow or calcium hydroxide, which is just dug up out of the ground. Um, there's several locations in Mexico. It's dug. If you go to the grocery, a Mexican or, or a Hispanic grocery store, you can buy it. It's a white powder. Um, you can get it off Amazon. If you live near a Walmart, Walmart has pickling lime, which is... It's, um, it's very similar. It's almost the same thing, and, and, and it works the same way. Some some people use potassium hydroxide, which is wood ash, and some people use um, sodium hydroxide, which is lye on a, on a commercial level. But it's the fact that you're changing that pH and doing it. So this is how you do it at home. Incredibly simple. You take your dried maize, you put it in a pot, you add water, you add a very little amount of this cow, bring it to a simmer for 30 minutes, turn off the heat, turn put it on the lid, let it sit overnight. The next day, you rinse off the... Um, you rinse off the outside and you're done. Now there's certain amounts you put in, right? And, and it, I describe it in the book, but that's literally it. It takes about five minutes of active time, about a half an hour or somewhat, I'm just keeping an eye on it. And then all the work's done for you overnight and you have a completely different food the next day. And not only is it more nutritious, but it tastes better. It smells better. The texture's better. It's a completely different thing. That's so fascinating. Would you then argue because I'm just going to make this real life. But if I were to grab a can of corn or a can of hominy, would you say that the hominy is a more bioavailable for us to eat in terms of nutrition? Oh, 100%. If it's it's processed properly. Now, if you get the can of hominy, look at it, because for some reason, people don't want to realize they for some reason think, oh my gosh, lye is is really dangerous. And it is in, in certain quantities, but in this case, it's it it has health benefits. There are there is hominy that actually boasts on the back that say, you know, not not processed with any lye. It's it's not it's not been through the process. It's actually not, it shouldn't even be called hominy. So make sure that if you're buying a can of hominy that it's been through that process. You can buy masa flour or maseka which has actually been through the process. In fact, just about any high-end grocery store or Hispanic grocery store will have it. And it's, it's, the, it's the flour that, that you just add water to to make the tortillas. 
So it has been through that process. The only problem with the Maseka is that it's typically degerminated. For storage, for shelf life, so it's the it's the same thing. It's the same equivalent as saying, "I'm going to make sourdough bread, but I'm going to use nothing but white bleached flour." Right. Um, right. So, are there health benefits because of the process? Yes, but is the is the raw ingredient going into it a little bit compromised? Yes. Um, if you have, if you live anywhere near a good tortilleria or a good a really high end good Mexican restaurant they're probably nishtamalizing themselves and you can probably go and buy just some of the masa dough or the tortillas directly from them. Um, be careful because most, a lot of them don't. A lot of them will just buy the maseca, the masa flour, just add water. And, and even though they have the big machines and they're pressing and they're flipping tortillas, they're actually not the same. Or do it yourself. It really is that easy. But here, it's not, again, none of these things by themselves are huge deals. It, corn or maize is a huge deal if that is, if you're one of if you're one of those populations where it's about the only access to food that you have, right? And and then it becomes a big issue. But the fact that all the corn that you're eating isn't fully nestomalized, not a big deal. The fact that all the bread you're not eating is is not fully sourdough, well, not a big deal. But if it's the maize and it's the flour and it's the this and and all of the at every level in your diet something about the process has been compromised and you're not getting the most out of it, then all of those things build up. And then you're talking about a diet that isn't as nourishing as it could be or as safe as it could be. Let's talk about dairy. I know that I think we're both in agreement that raw dairy is ideal, but um, Mm -hmm. if we can talk a little bit about dairy, do you think that the homogenization pasteurization, the dairies that we find at stores are then safe because most dairy that's raw is not allowed in most places? (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's, and it's such a charged topic. And I love talking about dairy. Let me really quickly just say something about what happens when we drink from our, from our mothers. I did. I, I said earlier at the beginning of this discussion that um, almost every food that we consume, we're not designed to eat. However, I will say the one food that we are, I mean, the one food that the human body is perfectly designed through evolutionary processes to make safe and complete use of is dairy. I mean, we're mammals, but that, that, but it's only for a short period of time when, when we're infants. Right. And this is what, and, and so all mammals are called mammals because we drink milk from our mothers and the mammary glands, the name, we, we understand what this is, but um, there's a couple of things about that process. I think are important to this conversation when we drink from our mothers and this is mammals in general, right? So the milk is full, is teeming with incredible bacteria, Bacteria that are designed through evolutionary processes to operate at body temperature, right? And when we drink our mother's milk, it's coming into our bodies already in the process of fermenting. Now, when we're infants and we're taking in this milk, the only thing that we're consuming is liquids. So several things happen when when uh, that liquid enters our digestive tract. It gets hit with an enzyme called lipase, which breaks helps break down the fat. Lactase, which helps break down the lactose right? The sugars and milk. And also, uh, depending on the animal you are, chymosin or a chymosin-like enzyme that helps coagulate the milk. And and we coagulate the milk because um, if it's just a liquid, it passes, and we're not eating any solid foods, it passes through our digestive tract entirely too fast to fully break down and for our body to absorb the nutrients in it. So nature has figured out a way to coagulate it or turn it almost into a jello-like substance. And when that happens in our stomachs, um, it sits there longer. 
And because it sits there longer, it can get, it, it can ferment, it can get activated uh, and, and worked on by different enzymes, and it can even mechanically break down a little bit and into a different state. And then it goes into our small intestines, the nutrients that are now in, a, in, in an absorbable state can be absorbed and then it can pass through our bodies. So that's what happens. When we and other animals get weaned off of our mother's milk and begin to eat solid foods, we suppress or lose the ability to produce a lot of the enzymes we need to completely digest milk. And in fact, you know, a lot, many people were, many people listening or are either lactose intolerant or know somebody that's, that's lactose intolerant. And the sort of general idea today is I'm like, that's kind of weird. Like you're lactose intolerant. No, the, the reality is lactose intolerance is the norm, right? Most animals become lactose intolerant. They stop the ability and including humans stop the ability to produce lactase um, when they're older. And 60% of modern humans right now on the planet are lactose intolerant. It's actually weird to be lactose. It's actually very, very weird that some people, some human adults are lactose tolerant. And it's because of a few separate genetic mutations that occurred in populations that started to rely heavily on dairy from other animals in Africa and, and, and in Europe. So if we come at it from that perspective that, yeah, okay, we're perfectly designed to consume dairy when we're infants. There's some biological processes that make that dairy as safe and nourishing as possible. And now most of us have a suppressed ability to be able to do that. Now the question is not should we or shouldn't we consume dairy? It's more just like everything else. How should we best consume dairy? How should, what should we do to our dairy to make it as safe and nourishing as possible for our bodies? And to me, just like with every other food, it's okay, how do we replicate those biological processes outside of our body before we put them in our mouths because we no longer have that ability to do it? And, and the, the first answer is num number one, accessing the most high quality, you know, raw milk as possible. Number two, um, fermenting that dairy because that's the process that was happening inside of our bodies to do the best things possible to it. Um, and if you're a cheesemaker or know anything about cheese making, what you will realize is that the story I just told about what happens in our stomach as infants is actually what we do in a pot on our stove when we're making cheese. We're using the same exact enzymes. And I like to say, if you're, if you have a baby and you're burping a baby, you know, patting a baby on your shoulder and it's burping and it spits up and it looks like cottage cheese and smells like provolone, that's exactly what it is. They actually, we make cheese in our stomachs as infants, all mammals do. And the enzyme that cheesemakers use to coagulate the milk, the chymosin, is actually taken from the stomachs of unweaned animals, usually calves. So, number one, and so I say that because <laughs> what kind of now? So, what kind of milk should we have? What kind of? Well, number one, we should have milk that at least has the ability to go through that digestive process. If if the safest way for us to consume dairy is to allow it to go through those processes, great. If we're consuming milk that cannot go through that process, something about it is so screwed up that it won't coagulate or won't ferment or won't do something that we need it to do, then I really question whether or not it should go into our bodies. We here, everything that we do here at the Modern Stone Age Kitchen is made entirely 100% from scratch because I want us to have complete control over the process, you know, how we make that food as safe and nourishing as possible for our customers and for the community. And most of the milk on the grocery store shelves, we cannot make cheese from. We make these really amazing Friday nights. We do uh, these wood-fired pizzas where everything's made from scratch. We make all the um, the pepperoni and the sausage from local animals. We do a sourdough crust. We make um, we make all the cheese, and 
there's very little milk that I can legally have access to that I can even make cheese from. It's just impossible. It won't work. Um, homogenized milk is most, I think most everybody would agree that homogenization is even worse than pasteurization. And the, the, in, there are some arguments for pasteurization where you can say, okay, look, like this milk right here will kill somebody or make them sick. If I pasteurize it, maybe it's not good milk, but at least they won't die. And it's okay, well, great. In that case, I understand pasteurization. There's no reason to homogenize. The only reason to homogenize is convenience. So that when you get up in the morning and you open the fridge and you pull the milk container out, you actually have to shake it to put the fat back in suspension before you pour it into your coffee or before you pour it into your cereal bowl. So there's no reason to homogenize. So right away, I would stay away from any homogenized milk. Pasteurized milk, um, if you if you're in an area that doesn't have access to legal access to raw dairy, or you just don't have access to good raw dairy, uh, you, quite often you can find a place that does low temperature pasteurization. There's different ways to meet the pasteurization requirement. You can either hit it at a high temperature for a short period of time, okay. or a lower temperature, more it reach that temperature more gently and keep it there for a longer period of time, and it does different things to the proteins. And I can tell you from a cheesemaker who's sitting here trying to replicate those biological processes that are so important that low temperature pasteurization is creates a completely different food. So low temperature pasteurization is great. Anything that's ultra pasteurized or ultra high temperature pasteurized, I don't think has any business in our bodies whatsoever. So that's the conundrum I see with a lot of the organic milks. Um, yes, yes. I, yeah, so... <laughs> It's all ultra pasteurized. Yes, yes. Yes. And all the almond milks, all the nut milks, but all the organic milks are ultra high temp. I mean, they could literally not be in the fridge and be purchased um, on the shelves, but people wouldn't buy it. So they started storing them in the refrigerator, even though they don't need to be because they're ultra high temp. And so the question becomes, everyone wants these organic grass fed, but ultra high temp pasteurized milks, but I don't think it's necessarily good for us. No. Here's another thing that the, the and I think this is really uh, this is really telling. When I was writing the book, my family and I were living in Ireland for a year. I was on sabbatical, and we were working with a great dairy, a small dairy called the Village Dairy. And Ireland is just amazing, and the grass, and I mean, everything's grass fed by default. I mean, there's no even label for it because you just know everything's <laughs> grass fed. So this little this small dairy was there, and they were doing the lowest pasteurization uh, allowable by law, and we were living on a little farm actually in Dublin and we had access to raw milk uh, uh, every day. So we just would get that direct, literally directly from the cow. So that was great. But anytime we were traveling around Ireland, we'd go to the grocery store to get whatever. And, and usually village dairy, dairy was there. They're actually getting big enough and Ireland's not huge anyhow. Right. So you had it in a bunch of different stores, but I remember going in there all the time and looking at the different options for the dairy. And it always seemed like their milk was old. Like I, you look at the sell by date, and it's like, oh man, this must have been sitting on the shelf forever. They must not be moving it. And maybe I'll get another one because this one looks fresher. And I talked to him about it one day. He says, you don't have any idea. That is our biggest issue. He's, I, he goes, the other milk can't sit on the shelf so long that I can deliver my milk fresh, like the day after it's been milked to a grocery store. And if you look at the sell-by date, because they have a shorter, you know, a shorter oh, right, right. shelf life, that it, it looks like it's been sitting on the on the shelf for three weeks, whereas it's literally the exact opposite because of of that. And and those are the kinds of things that I think consumers 
really truly need to know? And the only answer with there, really the only answer with dairy is you got to find somebody as local and as possible and, and see what they're doing. And truly one of my, I, listen, I am a huge raw milk advocate. Right. I think the safest, most amazing milk on the planet comes from raw dairy from a farm and farmers that are treating their animals the right way and treating their milk the right way. But I would also say raw milk can be dangerous, right? So, so they're at that, at that large industrial scale, I would never drink raw milk from a dairy like that, even if I had the opportunity to do so. So there is, there is that kind of weird, well, this is the, the safest, most nourishing thing possible in a different state. It can be dangerous and, the other milk, but the other milk out there is, well, it won't kill you, but it's not going to nourish you either at the same point side. And so it's such a complex conversation that um, it's hard to have with somebody that just wants to be told, I want to you know, get this milk. Yeah. So for me, it's, if I'm going to drink raw dairy, I want to make sure that I, I know the farmer, I've been to the farm, I see how clean it is. They should probably know all their cows names. And that's kind of my, uh, my checklist. No, and that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's where it just goes back to what you're saying. Technically, all foods can have some positives and negatives. It's not really what food should you eat. Rather, it's that nuance of how did they make this food? And so same with us. I know that there are people that do get sick from raw milk, but I would never buy it from a mass producer. We have been going to the same farmer for six years. My kids drink it every single day. Mm -hmm. And they have never gotten sick. And sometimes they test their milk and they share it with us. But I trust my farmer fully. And I know that they do the proper procedures to get the milk. And it's wonderful. And sometimes I wonder, you know, when we have the conventional milk in the stores that are not organic, but they're not going through that high temp, which one is worse versus the organic that's ultra high temp. And if someone's like, well, I don't have access to anything, I just have to get my milk at the store and I want to feed it to my young children, do they get the whole milk that's not organic or do they get the ultra high temp ones that are organic or do Mm -hmm. they, should they just not feed them milk? (laughs) These are the conversations that are so complex, but these are the ones we have to have. Right. And anybody listening that just wants, just tell me what to eat. I don't want to think about it anymore. You need to think about it. You're feeding your family and you're feeding in some cases in in the case of something like milk, many of us are feeding our kids every Every single day of their lives. This thing that we don't want, don't don't tell me you need to know. And and, you know, it it gets really complex because um, first of all, anything ultra pasteurized, we don't allow in our house at all, period. And again, partially because I can't put it through that process that is so essential to to, to making it a safe and nourishing. I, I just, I can't, I can't even make cheese out of it. If I can't make cheese out of it, then I don't, I don't want to put it in my body. But, but at the same time, it's kind of like, I, I think the same way about vegetables and, and meat. We have a rule in our house and we have kind of this checklist, like the, the ideal way that meat gets into our house is that we've, we've hunted it or trapped it or fished it or whatever and butchered it ourselves. That's number one. And obviously not all of our food is that way, but whenever we can do it, we do. Sure. The next one is, you know, we know the person that raised that animal and we've actually done all the butchering ourselves. And the third one is we know who's raised, you know, we know the farm that it came from, but, and we also know the abattoir and the butcher and they know my kids by name and we get the meat from them. And, and that there is a very, it's very, very rare that meat makes it into our house and hasn't passed one of those tests. Mm-hmm. And that's a safe food system. And that's a food system where, you know, I hope that that butcher 
and he knows my kids' faces and he's known them their entire time they've been growing up. If that meat falls on the floor, <laughs> he thinks twice about picking it up because he sees their face in it. You know, but it, it, so one, there's there's that, and and sometimes you know you notice that grass fed is incredibly important to us. But we will get meat from a local small farmer that it isn't 100% grass fed, but has passed all those other pieces of it, sure. which is which is really important. And the same thing with with vegetables and you know the organic label. Organic is is very very important. But I know organic farms around here that are treating their workers in a terrible way, mm-hmm. and just and they're massively huge farms, and they kind of aren't going with the intent of what organic really means. And there's a more conventional farm that is small, and they're doing a really nice job, and they just haven't got the certification yet. They might be working towards it. They treat their workers really well, and I'd rather buy something from them. So right. there's so many different layers to it, and milk is milk is a great one. What about raw meat? So, you know, there's a lot of that discussion where raw meat has some of that bacteria. And so when you cook it, then it's less ideal for the body. Do you think we should be eating more raw meats? What are your thoughts with meat? Richard Rangham is a, uh, and for, for number one, if I were to eat raw meat, it would only be from a place that I know every place okay. that, that meat has been, um, period, period. Um, Richard Rangham is a primatologist from Harvard. He's a great guy, great researcher. Um, and he wrote a great book uh, about fire, uh, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. And I, I referenced it in the book, but I sat with him one day uh, and, and spoke with him. And he told me that he's done a lot of work with the, uh, understanding the digestibility of, of meat in the human gut. And listen, we are not, again, we are not designed to eat meat either. I mean, we're not designed to capture animals. We don't have big, huge canines. It doesn't mean we don't. In fact, I, I believe in introducing animals into our diet was one of the key things that actually made us human. We needed it. But the only way we were able to introduce animals into our diet is because we created a whole bunch of technologies that allowed us to do this. We're not designed to jump on animals and rip them apart with, with our teeth. We create tools to allow us to do it. So it's a, I know it's a weird thing to wrap your head around, but it's essential to our diet. I, I'm convinced to include animal-based foods, but it requires help to do it properly. And I know some of us who are just buying it at the grocery store don't necessarily understand all the technologies that went into getting that animal ready to get into that package, but a lot of it already went into it, right? So one of the things he said was that a hunk of red meat, while the human body can derive incredible nutrition from it, it's not in its most optimal form, right? So uh, he he studied chimpanzees, a very similar primate to us. And one of the things that they do when they eat raw red meat, well, any meat that they eat is raw, but when they consume red meat, they often eat a, a leaf from a, a particular plant at the same time, like literally at the same time they put the meat in their mouth, they put this leaf in their mouth and it's a leaf that has an incredibly high silica content. So, so think sandpaper. And he thinks that this is because when they're chewing this meat, this leaf and the silica on it are actually helping shred that meat and physically mechanically break it down into smaller pieces. So it's easier for their body to digest. And he thinks it's very similar for us as well. And if you think about the times in even a high-end restaurant that we eat raw red meat, it's either carpaccio or tartare. And carpaccio, it's sliced incredibly thin, and tartare, it's chopped up like hamburger meat. So there is that physical um, breaking down of of the uh, – but then on top of that, he said – and he's done a lot of work with looking at the um, nutrients of nutrient bioavailability of red meat at different cooking levels. Mm-hmm. And he said that 
meat that is raw is it's difficult. Our body has to work really hard to get all the nutrients out of it. Now, don't get me wrong. We get a ton of nutrients from it, but if we're looking to maximize the nutrient bioavailability of meat, he said a little bit of cooking is ideal. It just helps release and makes it easier for our bodies. So to me, you know, armed with that information, like a medium rare hamburger is perfect. It's mechanically even broken down. It's, it's cooked just a little bit. And then um, we have more complete access to all of it. But don't get me wrong. We're, we're talking almost about nuances here right. because compared to something like a vegetable, a hunk of meat is so incredibly bioavailable, right? There's just a lot of discussion in the community, um, the meat-based community, where they'll say, well, raw meat is the ultimate supreme, but I don't know if that's necessarily true. And I felt like- I don't think be- that it is. I don't. Um, now, organ meats are a different thing, right? Organ meats are- bioavailable just as they are, right? So there there could be a safety issue, especially if you don't know where the organ meats are coming from to cook the organ meats. There's a, maybe a texture or pleasure aspect to cooking organ meats. And if, you know, those sorts of things, and there's other reasons to cook them, but a raw organ is in a state that's probably as bioavailable as it gets. And in fact, cooking helps um, actually reduce some of the nutrients in certain cases with, with some of the organ meats for sure, but a hunk of raw red meat is less bioavailable than it being broken down mechanically and through chemically through a little bit of heat. So talking about all these foods and the proper preparation and really just spending more time in the kitchen and understanding the land. I mean, how do we start even eating these foods? I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this. Most of my community is meat based or meat only. And they're like, there is no way I can eat hominy because my gut is just (laughs) a mess or I've suffered from metabolic syndrome. How do we start healing from a lot of the illness we've had? And then whether it's even a food addiction, um, something, maybe the hominy then triggers the desire to eat cornbread. How do Mm -hmm. we start healing properly to then start reintroducing things in a manner that was meant to be eaten? Well, let me, let me say this too. I I would never, uh, I had a discussion with Paul Saladino about this a few months ago. I would never tell somebody who doesn't eat bread or doesn't eat maize that you need to include this in your diet to be as healthy as possible. We we don't have a biological requirement for them. Uh, But, but with that said, one thing I will, I have come to learn and I, and I, and I do think that this is an important component of, of true nourishment and true health that we have to be aware of is that for humans, true health and true nourishment is a combination of meeting or exceeding our biological needs through food, but also our emotional and cultural needs through totally. food. And, and it's only when you have both of those together that you can truly be, I, I believe, fully nourished. And, and, and food is just, just a part of the human experience. It's a part of everything that we do. So we have to, under, and it's kind of like, the discussion. it's sort of a give and a take. So I would never tell somebody that doesn't want to eat bread, you should eat bread. But I would say to somebody, I do want to eat bread. How do I include this in my diet in the safest and most nourishing way possible? Well, then the answer to that is a true wild fermented, wild, slow, long fermented sourdough bread is a completely different food. And that's something that I that is in our diet. I believe it can be a healthy component of our diet. We don't eat it every single day. When we do eat it, it's always that. Same thing with maize. When we put maize in our diet, it's always nystomalized. If we put dairy in our diet, it is always fermented and from a high quality source. 
And one other quick thing about the dairy, I'd like to also say, uh, David Asher is an amazing cheesemaker, and he's written several books, one uh, called uh, The Art of Natural Cheesemaking. He does a lot of wild ferments in his cheesemaking, and he calls uh, fermentation unpasteurizing. And I, and, I, and I really like that idea. So many of us listening to this probably don't have access to good, high-quality raw milk. And we, if we're going to put dairy into our diets, it's going to be pasteurized. And it has to be because we don't have access to anything else. Now, fermenting does not get rid of any of the issues with the proteins when we denature the proteins through the pasteurization. But it does help heal or put back in some of the, some of the other effects of the, of the um of the pasteurization and makes it an, a, a completely live food again. So if you only have access, if you want to consume dairy and you only have access to pasteurized milk, I would consider at least thinking about making sure that uh, you're fermenting anything that you can with it. You're making fermented butter, you're making yogurt, you're making kefir, you know, wh- whatever those things are. I didn't want to get off topic, but I thought that was an, uh, an important point. No, I think it's really good. And I mean, it's just good for gut, good gut health some people just can't tolerate fermented foods because maybe they have a candida overgrowth or a fungal mm. yeast overgrowth. And that's where they have to be careful. But you know, that is, and this is where the conversations always get so nuanced, but you know, in the wellness space, it's like everything fermented is wonderful for you, but for certain people, it's not initially as sure. they heal. And I think the same goes with um, the bread. I, I, I have to agree with you where I think I thought if you just thrive on meat, that's great. And I think it is great. I think my diet's like 99.9% meat, but I want to eat that way by choice, not by that's the only food I can eat. So ideally you want to heal to a certain point and then say, okay, I will choose to have sourdough bread in the way it's properly prepared because my body can handle it. Not because if I ate that, then I'm sick. And that's where I want our community to really push themselves to heal, dabble in things to see, okay, what can I reintroduce? But now based on everything I, the way I feel and that then I'm still choosing to just eat meat. It's not that my body can't tolerate these foods. Absolutely. And, and I, I think that's a big distinction to make because otherwise then a carnivore diet becomes a bandaid, right? It's just, I can only eat these safe foods. And so therefore I'm going to sit in my safe bubble. And I, I believe that if you eat carnivore long-term, you can heal and then you can expand that. But I yes. just think the goal is to expand, but even if you choose to eat mostly meat, another very 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 quick thing and, and the and from that perspective that's that's the perfect i love that perspective yes and, and, and it's your choice to do it but I, yes. i'd also say if if you want to include bread in your diet and it's sourdough if you want to include something in your diet I and mean, in your hardcore i mean i am most of my diet is i, I like to say animal based because we eat a lot of organ meats and fats and things too but so and most of our diet is animal based and I used to come from the, you know, how they had, okay, if anything varies from that, I'm cheating, right? And I'm cheating. And, 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 and it's that sort of psychological spiral that you go through if you've cheated to do something. Right. From the perspective that I have now, if the food that you're including, you've gone through the steps to make sure it's as safe and nourishing as it can possibly be for your body. And you're eating a, a slice of sourdough bread or a tortilla made with nishtamalized, you know, heirloom maize or for what, whatever it happens to be, then it's, it's a completely different thing. It's not cheating, right? It's not cheating at all. Like you're putting something as nourishing as can be into your body and that's fine. And you might do it once a week, you might do it three times, whatever, whatever it is. And, you know, Dr. Mindy Peltz has a great term. She doesn't say the word cheating. She, she a cheat day. She calls it a feast day. 
and the idea that you're introducing something else. And psychologically, that is a completely different thing. And it doesn't send you into that spiral. Because when I would go in that spiral, mm-hmm. I keep the Oreos away from me because I'll eat the whole box kind of thing. Right. But this is a completely different approach. In that same, this same thinking, that's where I have the concerns with a little bit too much organ meat. I'm a big fan of nose mm-hmm. to tail. I think eating marrow, bone broth, um, the fat, the suet, all of those things are really important. I think organ meats, there's a lot that are really good. But, you know, we've come to believe that, okay, so the primary organ is liver. And so we are going to eat a lot. And I see people eat like um, half a pound of liver and they're eating it every single day. And this is where, again, it's very nuanced where too much of a good thing can actually be not ideal as well. And in our society where our liver gets so impacted from maybe the excess fructose or the alcohol or the stress from all the chemicals and everything else. Well, then if we add more liver consumption and we're eating it in amounts that maybe wasn't as natural, then the concern becomes, well, now you're forcing your liver to also store the fat soluble vitamins and other nutrients that is in excess. And and vitamin A toxicity or whatever. I mean, certainly. So you you make a very good point and you just said the natural way. And this is where um, I I really like to go back and, and rely on what I've witnessed these traditional groups do when, when they, when they take an animal down, when we started about three and a half million years ago, when we started in introducing animal foods into our diet, we were scavengers. And the only things we could introduce was meat because we were, you know, we had a sharp edge. We had this really basic, incredibly sharp, but just basic stone tool. And it allowed us to hack off large quantities of meat from a, from a carcass, from a scavenged carcass on the African Savannah that some other animal was biologically designed to take that animal down had killed and they ate all the organs and went off and, and, and slept. And, and there's this carcass. And we ran in there and battled the ancestors, the buzzards and hyenas and took some of this meat off of this stone tool. But, and that's how we consumed animals, any animal-based foods for about a million and a half years. You know what? Nothing really changed, but our brains grew a little bit. Our bodies grew a little bit, but nothing really changed. It wasn't until we developed hunting technology that we are able to take animals down at will and have first access to the whole part of that animal, including, and most importantly, the, the blood fat and the organs right. that we started consuming the entire animal. And that's when we see the largest jump in body and brain size. And that's one of the reasons that I think organ meats are so incredibly important, but, you know, for as silly as it is for somebody to just go to the grocery store and, and silly and unnatural as it is for somebody to go to the grocery store and say, okay, I'm going to be healthy. I'm going to eat meat. But the only good meat I should eat is chicken breast. So I'm going to just eat chicken breast four days a week. And you go and just buy chicken breast. Well, that's silly on a lot of levels. One of them is, you know, what about the rest of the chicken? <laughs> you're, you're just sitting there and somebody else is dealing with, with the, the issue, but you're just taking chicken breast. That's, that's kind of weird. It's just as silly to say, hey, I'm going to eat this exorbitant amount of liver because somebody said it's good for me. And all of a sudden you're out eating the amount of liver that you would ever have in right. a given hunt scenario or something like this. Nobody does that. I mean, that, that doesn't happen either. So yeah, should we really put some emphasis on organ meats? 100% because not only are they incredibly nutritious, but, and bioavailable, but they're so demonized or out of the conscience of a, of a modern Western diet today that I think we need to put some emphasis on it. However, yes, there's people putting way too much emphasis on it. You know, this, this is how it typically went. And this is how it typically goes. in a lot of these traditional groups that I've spent time with, you kill an animal, you, st- you eat the entire thing, and then you go kill another animal. Yeah. So you don't have access to more liver, all of you, your whole family, 
than what that animal had then. And you're probably not going to eat another liver until you go kill another animal again, right? So you've probably eaten your way through that entire animal, the spleen, the kidney, the heart, the brains, the eyes, the blood, the intestines, and the meat, and the marrow, and the fat. And then you go kill something else. So when you think about how much of anything should I be eating, it's it's really a modern phenomenon that we have to think about it. It wasn't something we thought about before. So when you do think about it, okay, what would it have been like? Okay, if I'm going to, this is why I really, again, I'm a strong advocate of nose to tail eating, but not to the extreme where you're just eating the tail, right? You're eating the whole thing. So think, get a whole chicken, like literally go to the store and buy a whole chicken and your answer is solved. It come, the, the liver will, and the heart, right? And the gizzard will come in a little bag inside the chicken. You eat that, you eat the rest of the chicken, and then you go and buy another chicken. And you don't have to ask how much liver should I eat? You've just literally eaten it by default. Right. It's a little bit harder with a cow or a pig. So um, we include organ meats in our diets every week, but we don't over consume them, right? I don't eat liver every single day. Right. I eat a little bit of liver, a little bit of liver a couple of days a week, but you know what else we eat? We eat the spleen, we eat the kidney and we eat the heart and we eat all of those other pieces. So I think we're over, we are overcomplicating it. And I 100% agree, we can definitely overconsume those organs. Yeah, it's so interesting because for so long, so many people just eat the standard American diet. We buy from the grocery store, all the processed foods, and then we get into health. And then we swing the up the total other way instead yes. of just finding this right balance. And I love that your book, that, therefore, I mean, even the dairy conversation we just had, you prioritize the, I guess, the safest or properly prepared dairy. And then you go down the list. And I I think that's such an important conversation. A lot of people will say this is so nuanced, too confusing, but I think it's such an important conversation. Anything like you're saying, whether it's raw meat, whether it's cooked meat, whether it's organs, whether it's um, the the corn and the grains, it depends, right? It really (laughs) depends. And it depends on the person and it depends on the preparation and where it's from. When it comes to the organ meat, you want to make sure that you're not just getting a sliver of the liver that wasn't diseased and the other part of the liver Mm -hmm. is diseased. And that's the part that's scary. So that's where when it comes to organ meats, I am a fan of just going to somebody you trust. Do you have any opinion on that? 100%. And one of the other reasons it's incredibly important too, is because the Organs can break down much more quickly than than meat can. One of the reasons that, you know, organ, the organ meats are always eaten first. When an animal's taken down, the the organ meats are always consumed first. And part of it is because it has almost no shelf life whatsoever. And we're talking about areas where there's no, you know, refrigeration or or freezer space. What, What I would do is source the highest quality that you can find, hopefully fresh, bring them home and realize that you know, a beef liver is a huge thing. It's huge. A pig liver is a big thing. You're not going to eat that whole thing in one case. You spent all this time trying to track it down. You've gotten this high quality liver, bring it home and then cut it into individual size portion, not individual size, but down into smaller portions and freeze them separately. So when you're going to use it, you pull out a small piece and then use that piece. And then the other stuff is sitting in the freezer you know, very well. But yes, um, the other thing, not only organ meats, but also fat, I think is, you know, fat are where a lot of the toxins are stored. And we always, we always say, oh, the liver stores all the toxins. The liver is a filter for toxins, but it has mechanisms that allow it to clean itself as well. Um, the toxins are, are often stored in fat. So if you're sourcing fat and fat is a 
big part of your diet, which it is in hours, I would also be making sure I'm paying attention to where that fat's coming from. That's true. No, that I 100% agree with as well. What are your thoughts about fruit? So a lot of our fruits, like the banana, for example, I read that in the Paleolithic era, era, the bananas were a lot smaller, the seeds were a lot bigger, there was a lot less meat in the fruit, and it was a lot less sweeter. So everybody eating the the common bananas that we eat doesn't matter if it's organic doesn't matter if it's gmo doesn't matter what it is those little black dots we see like those were the seeds that we bred out do you think that having a lot of fruit in our modern society is is safe <laughs> you did you just did it there too and and because it's the way exactly what i do when I try to decide whether something should or should be in my diet or my family's diet, I first go back, right, way back and say, okay, what was it like in the past to sort of to lay that foundation? Understanding there's some differences today, but what was it like in the past? And we've spent a lot of time with hunter-gatherer groups around the world. And I will tell you, when wild fruits are nothing like modern domesticated fruits. So it's not like a, it's not a one-to-one to say, oh, well, they ate fruit in the past. We can eat fruit now without thinking about it. It's it's not the same fruit. The fruits, like you said, were often very, very small. The seeds were a lot larger. It took a lot more work to actually get to the part you wanted to eat. And they weren't anywhere near as sweet. In fact, a lot of the fruits were, you know, bordering on on, on the bitter, on the bitter side. Yes. So it's not the same thing as sticking a banana, which is the sort of, you know, wild fruit on steroids. It doesn't resemble a wild fruit at all and say, okay, well, they have bananas. We should have bananas. It's not, it's not the same thing. Um, we do eat fruit. We, we do think of fruit as a treat, not as a staple, right? We think of fruit as something. I remember growing up and there was so much sweet around that a raisin to me was like, who the hell would eat a raisin? <laughs> who the heck would eat a raisin? Right? Why would you eat a raisin? There's sugar, right? There's sugar in front of me, honey, there's maple right. syrup, whatever. And then you know, now when we're doing a lot more historical cooking, we're like, grapes were sweeteners. I mean, they had so little sugar in their diet that grape, that, or I'm sorry, raisins. So I, I think about it the same way now. We, we eat fruit, but it's a treat. And, and we don't like restrict fruit. We don't say you don't have one blueberry, but right, right. when we're eating it, our mental conscious of it is, okay, this is something that's sweet. It should be sweetening the food that I have. You know, you don't need to add a lot of other sweeteners if you're eating these sorts of things, but do recognize two things about modern fruits. One is they are bred to be sweet, number one. And number two, they don't have anywhere near the nutrition density of their wild counterparts. Uh, there's a fantastic book called Eating on the Wild Side. I highly recommend it. The first chapter is all about foraging and wild plants, but every chapter after that takes a different uh, a look at a different sort of food. And one of the things that uh, the author, she's she's wonderful, uh, did is she looked at the nutrient density of that food through time, and you know what's happened to it. And I, I forget what it is, but something an apple today has like a third of the nutrition that that apple would have had in 1950. So in other words, just to, but, but how much more sugar that it, it has. So just to get the same nutrients that your grandfather had when he ate an apple, we have to eat three, but with those three apples comes all that extra sugar with it. And it is a completely different. So I don't consider fruit a health food, but I do think it can be part of a healthy diet. And I agree with that. And that's why I think that most of us are in our modern day, we're deficient in our uh, minerals because it's not really in our soil anymore. So mm-hmm. our plants aren't really getting it. And then the the cows that are eating 
the grass, there's just less in the soil. And then of all the, you know, monocropping, it's no wonder that most people are deficient in potassium and magnesium. And then now we're in this low salt world where, you know, sodium is so bad for us. And then we're eating the iodized salt that has even less nutritional values. Absolutely. And then we're being told, eat a banana. It's the healthiest thing you can eat at the grocery store. For potassium, especially when bacon has so much more potassium, right? So how do we start going about living this way, you know, changing our habits? So one, maybe the first step is just eating less processed foods. And then once you're kind of there, how do we start cleaning up, I guess, the way that we're eating so that maybe one day we can try the sourdough or the, the corn that's properly processed? How do we just start making this a lot more simple. And I know in your book, you bring up chicken, right? You brought, bring up, that's a perfect, simpler way to harvest a whole animal. Yeah. I think it's all about that connection. It's mentioned earlier, it's about that empowerment Mm -hmm. that you can give yourself and there's no better place to get it than your own kitchen. Everything that we talked about today was based on some sort of a food processing strategy that was done some cases for millions of years. And they were all done by people with a lot less equipment than you have in your own kitchen, right? They were in caves with stone tools and clay pots and those sorts of things and fire. So every one of us is already equipped to do almost everything we're talking about. It's just the access to that information. And there's a lot of ways to access the information, but doing it, listening to podcasts, reading books are all amazing, but true understanding of your food is something that you do have to do yourself. And it isn't that difficult. My suggestion to you, my, my short answer to your question is get back into the kitchen. And I know it's uh, so difficult to do because the time constraints and, and all of those other things, but this is, this is my suggestion. You take the foods that you eat every day or, or feed your kids or your family every day or several times a week. And that's where you focus. If you guys, if you eat a lot of bread, then do it with bread. If you eat a lot of yogurt, then do whatever, whatever it is, learn to make that food entirely from scratch. And even if you just do it once, you don't have to make that food forever. But what you will learn by making that food once entirely from scratch is more than you can learn from a book or a podcast or a documentary or a YouTube video. And then even if you buy it from that point forward, you are walking into a grocery store as a fully informed consumer. And the marketing and the advertising and the labels and the colors and the words, none of that means anything to you. You can go right to the food, find the best version possible, and use your money to support the food processor that's actually doing good things. And I say, you know, it's a start. It's a journey, right? We're, we're at a point now where, you know, we're making just about every single thing that we eat entirely from scratch. But that's 20 years later after starting down this path of, of trying to do it. Even if you just pick one thing, I don't care what it is. You know, I use the example in the book of, of just making pancakes on Sunday from scratch. If you guys, eat, if your family eats pancakes every Sunday, just make pancakes from scratch on Sunday. You you know, that is a step in the right direction. You're not going to all of a sudden be fermenting all your vegetables and butchering all your animals and making all your cheese overnight. But one little step in the right direction is not is does more over the long haul than you can imagine. And it provides that confidence and that sense of empowerment to go ahead and take the other step. But do it with the things you do all the time. I used to pride myself on, on making a Thanksgiving meal entirely from scratch. And we'd spend months, you know, I'd make all the cheese and I'd do all the this and I'd do all the, I'd do everything. And I'd pat myself on the back and it was cool. Don't get me wrong. It was very, very cool. But I only helped my family one day a year by doing that. That doesn't make a big difference. Right. If you eat macaroni and cheese three times a week, 
then learn to make it entirely from scratch. Because if you do that better, you're making a huge impact, right? So that that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Take the meals you eat every day and learn how to make them and then either make them forever or at least know how to buy the ingredients the right way. And I, and I fully agree with that. I mean, my parents raised me on a lot of the packaged foods and that's probably why I got sick um, and so I started to bake and I never baked. Um, and so I started baking coconut muffins with, you know, more coconut oil or um, butter and just trying to explain to my children how these packaged foods are made. And it was shocking even for me that you use like a full stick of butter and instead of butter in muffins, they use canola oil. Yes. And so when we think of the seed oils and we're like, oh, just a little bit here, a little bit of ranch. But no, in our baked foods, in all of the processed foods, they use a lot and it does accumulate. And that's where it becomes highly toxic and inflammatory. And it was eye-opening for my children to just see the, the cup that we put it in and how much oil we needed in order to make mm -hmm. this bake good. And then I'll tell them that muffin that you see at the market, they use canola oil or soybean oil, and that's how they make it cheaper. But it's really, really unhealthy for you. And it's doing these things consistently with your children to wake them up. So we no longer just go to the grocery store and buy meat. We go to our farmer. They know our farmer that gives the grass fed milk. They see the goats that um, gives the milk to them. And then they see part of it. And hopefully one day we can raise our own chickens and things like that. But it's like, like you said, I still don't raise my chickens. I still have to go get eggs, but it's a lot better in a few years than where I knew nothing. And I was just buying whatever was more economical or what looked more tasty, but that was getting me sick. And, and you, you, you brought up like so many important points. And, and what I want everybody to realize is, is that it is a journey. These steps, every little step is so incredibly important over the long haul, a little step becomes a huge yeah. like staircase, but don't, please don't let any of this sound overwhelming or exhausting and prevent you from taking one of those steps. You know, I, 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 we cook a lot with our children. We always have, but it isn't always this sort of Paleolithic Norman Rockwell painting, you know, where, where, you know, there's the whole family together and we're all cooking and we're all butchering and we're all, it's, it's not, sometimes it is, but quite often it's, I've brought it in. I'm cooking. I got one kid watching TV, one kid doing homework and one kid playing Xbox, but you know what they know, they see, they hear, hear, they smell, they, they take all of it's happening. And even if it's you in your kitchen by yourself, sometimes you're making a bigger impact on your kids than if you weren't doing it at all. Right. You know, and, and it, it's, it's wonderful. And if you don't have access to a farmer's market, you don't have access to a butcher right now, and you can't do a lot of these things, then do what you can buy, buy a whole chicken at a big box store like BJ's or Costco. And that's a humongous step and it's right. worth it alone. No, and I agree with that. I mean, my kids never have helped me make bone broth, but they know once they start smelling it, they know it's going to be two days later when they actually get to eat the bone broth because it takes time to cook. Then yep. we have to skim the tallow up top. And so they know, they know the difference and they know the, the gelatin or the collagenousness of the soup rather than the bone broth we get at the stores. That's just basically water. So they yep. do know those differences, even though they've never partaked in me actually making the bone broth. So I fully, fully agree with you. You talk about clay um, and charcoal mm. and the importance of detoxing and how it's just been a natural process of our evolution. A lot of us don't even detox. Uh, we don't use those products whatsoever. And then on top of that, there's so much toxins coming into our bodies. And so our liver, our 
um, detox pathways are just uh, bogged down. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of those ingredients and other ones for detoxing? Yeah, sure. Um, and now I'm not, I'm by no way an expert in, in detoxing, but I can tell you what I've witnessed and what I've seen um, both anthropologically and archaeologically. The clay and ash and charcoal and earth in general are, are, are a common part of the human experience, the human diet. And I believe they have been for at least 2 million years when we started controlling, controlling fire. Number one, it's if anybody's ever cooked on an open fire, it's impossible to keep some of those things just out of our food anyhow. So by default, they just got in. But it turns out that people understood and embraced what charcoal, what ash, and what clays can actually bring to their health when they're consuming it. And, and, and clays, clays are consumed by animals in general, clay and earth in, in general quite often, um, but also in our traditional diets as well. And, and people consume clays for usually one or of two reasons, or some in many cases, both. One is the increased uh, minerals that you can get from certain kinds of clays. And this is quite often seen in traditional groups with pregnant and lactating women who have an, obviously an increased nutritional need or people uh, during times of famine or also when they're sick. But the other reason and why many animals, including humans, can uh, eat clay is because especially certain kinds of clays will bind with certain toxins. Right. And that combination of the two together is a state that the body can't recognize and will pass through our body while we'll at the same time be able to reap the benefits of the nutrition of the food that we're eating. We see it in, in, in foods like egg corns with tannic acid or um, with potatoes with glycoalkaloids and a whole bunch of other issues. We see this intentional consumption of earth, of, of earth and especially clays. Um, there's a lot of information about clays out there, and you can even buy edible clay off of places even like Amazon that, that have it. Um, charcoal is just a natural detoxifier. And unfortunately, you know, it's, it's so crazy. And I love speaking about these things and teaching about these things and using these things. What I found now that we have a commercial operation and have to um, abide by health guidelines in the food that we produce, most of them, not most, many of them, in which I don't agree with at all, um, um, I just, some of these foods you're just not allowed to, or some of these ingredients you're just not allowed to use. Like charcoal is not on what we call the GRA, GRAS list, which is the generally regarded as safe list. Um, it is, in fact, we could get in a lot. We, we used to make these beautiful sourdough charcoal crackers. Um, and we had to stop because we're not allowed to use charcoal. It's insane. This food that, this is literally what they give you Anytime that you're sick, <laughs> you're from overdosing or you have too much of something, I mean, it's the first thing they keep it, it, it. There's every first aid truck has it. Every big medical box have it. Every hospital has it. It's what they give you. And we're not allowed to put it in our food. There are traditional foods based on charcoal. There's breads in Italy, for example, that are these charcoal breads and a lot of other places in the world because we know that, you know, what an amazing detoxifier charcoal is but I am not allowed to use it. We are working with the FDA to try to get clearance, but at the moment we're not allowed to use it. That's awesome. Yeah. It's unfortunate when they allow you to use all these other toxins that are banned in so many other countries. Can you share a little bit about your market? So do you have a store or a restaurant? Yeah. Oh, so we wow, have my okay. wife, Christine, I have to have two things. Now we have, we have a nonprofit called the Eastern shore food lab, and that's where all of our, our teaching and our research and our outreach uh, is, is housed. So we do a lot of in-person 
uh, virtual live and, and pre-recorded classes for all the things we talk about from butchering to cheese making to all of it. Um, and that's, that's really important to us because our main goal is to empower, inspire people and empower people to be able to, to do these things themselves. But we also found that there's so many people that really wanted the information, yeah. but also just wanted, you know, then saw the value in the food, but for some reason wanted to just purchase it. So we have, uh, uh, our, our for-profit is called the Modern Stone Age Kitchen, which is where we take all these practices to produce the food that we not only feed our families, but we truly believe in to feed the community as well. So um, it's not a full restaurant, although we do do themed meals in here, but it is, uh, it's, we have a, a sourdough bakery. We do everything from bone broth to pâtés to, you know, soaked grains and our homemade peanut butter and all those sorts of things. So anything that we do has gone through some sort of a process by us to make it as safe and nourishing as possible. And you can find information out about that at the modern stone age, I'm sorry, modern stone age kitchen.com. And we did, we have just started shipping as well. Oh, okay. Where, wonderful. where are you located? Where is that restaurant located or the kitchen? We're in Chestertown, Maryland. We're on the Eastern oh, okay. shore. So we're in a really nice rural community. It's beautiful where we are, uh, but it is kind of a little bit isolated. However, we're only about an hour from DC, an hour and a half from okay. Philly, a couple hours from New York. I read your story about your eye health. And then you've also mentioned um, very vulnerably and openly that when you were trying to go to grad school, that some of the professors were like, you're not going to make it. And so there were a lot of these moments in your life that I gathered that it was hard and yet you still fought through it. So do you think you were bored with it? What do you think on those hard days that you didn't say, this is just my lot in life. I'm just going to eat these foods that give me solace when I'm stressed or sad and comfort, but what made you choose to change your life and fight harder for a better day? That's a really, really, really good question. You know, I, I ended up, I went blind in college. I have an eye disease called keratoconus and I went blind and I have two corneal transplants. Um, I failed out of college and dropped out of the same school after I went back. And, um, and it took me 10 years to get my undergraduate. I can honestly tell you uh, that you know, now I have a PhD. I've had one for a long time. I've, I've been a college professor for over 20 years, but there was a long period of my life that I actually never believed I could graduate college, that it was just a foreign concept to even think about doing it. Um, and at the same time, you know, once I finished, finished wrestling and, and you know, all this was happening at the same time, I was suffering from so much metabolic disease that it was just, it was depressing. It was terrible couple things uh, made a huge difference. Number one, uh, I had people around me that just never gave up on me or any of my dreams or my uh, uh, desire to, to be healthy. My parents, my wife, my wife is absolutely amazing. Um, and that's huge. I mean, without that, without that resource base, I would have never been doing anything that I'm doing now. But I will tell you, it it took it to the next level when I started having kids, when it was, when it was, again, I mentioned this earlier, when it was more about me and my health and it was, okay, how do I do something for them and make sure their life is different than what I'm experiencing right now? Um, that, <clears throat> that was the driver to make me keep going and make me really turn things around. And, and more importantly, find out the information I needed to be able to turn things around. And the benefit was not only did I get to raise them in, in the way that I believe in, but my wife and I are both benefiting from, from the results of it as well. 
That's such a powerful story. And now, yes, your uh, kids get to learn and not have to go through what you went through to learn this. Instead, it's just part of their upbringing. And then it'll Mm -hmm. help your generations as it continues. So it's a huge blessing in disguise. Uh, Where can people find your book? Where can people find you? So the the book is available on all the major um, outlets, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, places like that. It's It's in Barnes & Noble stores and a lot of smaller stores as well. I don't know independently where they are, but I do know they're in every Barnes and Noble store. Um, it released in November in the U S and now it's released in a bunch of other countries as of, as of January. And if you, you can purchase a, a signed copy directly through us at uh, okay. modern and our other, obviously our other place at eat like So those two websites are great places to find out about all of our, our you know, eat like all of our classes, all of our research, our blogs, those sorts of things are, are found there. And then um, any of the food that we're producing can be found at modernstoneagekitchen.com. And you can find us on social media at, at DR Bill Schindler. So at Dr. Bill Schindler and at Modern Stone Age Kitchen. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a delight. And I think it's such important nuanced information. And um, your book, like I said, it you bring out the basics and then you explain to people, this is how you can get started. And then even with the animal, you don't have to go and hunt. You can first grab a full chicken and then you break it out of how to break down a chicken. So I thought it was really wonderful. So thank thank you. you Thank you for everything that you're doing and supporting our communities. Likewise. And thank you so much. It was great to speak with you. Okay, guys, I hope that you enjoyed this interview. It was such an amazing interview, even for me to learn about why my son spit up when they were little look like hot as cheese. And it just makes so much sense. I've never been a cheesemaker. I plan to do it one day because it's so fascinating. And it's just so much interesting information, even with corn. It's fascinating because there's so much more context than this food is good. This food is bad. This is ideal. I hope that this information just helps you find ways to find balance, but also helps you to eat better so that you can actually feel better. Remember, this is not about perfection, but about finding that true balance that works for you and your family. And also from a mindset perspective, gives you peace of mind. Okay, guys, make sure to eat a lot of meat. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you guys later. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com slash groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.